0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you're using one of the black Bibles that you'll find there in the seats, uh, you'll find today's text on page 611, (coughs) 611 of the black Bibles that are provided. We're going to be considering this morning five. Verses 12, uh, yeah, verses 12 through 21. I'd like to read this entire passage for us. Now, uh, verse 17 is very familiar to many of you, um, but what I want to do is consider the broader context, and I'm, I'm doing this coming off of a week of meetings with uh, the Fraser Evangelistic team just kind of to remind us to kind of sew some things together in our thinking about our spiritual growth. Uh, Jeremy referred to justification and sanctification uh, this last week as he was preaching, and this text is very relevant to that. So I want us to get the broad context, 2 Corinthians 5. I'll read aloud verses 12 through 21 if you want to follow along uh, in the Bible that you have in front of you. And then I would encourage you to keep that Bible open. Um, As we uh, march our way through the text, we will be pointing out things much like a tour guide. uh, Driving through a a safari would be pointing out various things. Uh, We'll do that with the text as well. So 2 Corinthians 5, we'll begin our reading in verse 12. Hear God's word. We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now, we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, that Christ was, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself Lord, we are thankful for this time. We are thankful for Your Word that speaks truth to us, that speaks life to us. I pray, Lord, that even this morning, as we consider this text of Scripture, You would be pleased to use us. Uh, We pray that You would use Your Word to change us. We pray, Father, that in these moments that we have together, Christ would be glorified that your spirit would speak. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You and I are to be changed and to be changing. You and I are to be changed and then to be changing. Or put differently, if we are changed, we must change. Now, what does all that mean? Well, think about for a moment a caterpillar, which which crawls up on a branch and spins a cocoon around itself. And then a process of what, what we call metamorphosis, right? Remember that from high school biology? Multiple choice, it was B, right? Oh, man, I knew I got it wrong. Right? Metamorphosis, right? That, that change, that transformation that takes place to that organism right, that caterpillar begins to sprout wings and those wings become stronger. And eventually those wings become strong enough to break free of that cocoon that it is wrapped up in. And by the time that process takes place, then emerges from that cocoon a beautiful butterfly. Now, I have a question for you. Is that the same organism? Well, yes and no. Right? No one would call what is flying around there a caterpillar. And no one would call what is crawling on the vine, like an inchworm, a butterfly. I mean, we think of them as very different things. Yet, at the very root, it's, it's still the same organism. It has just been so dramatically transformed that we now think of it as something completely different. Well, the Bible speaks of a new birth. You may be familiar, even in kind of churchy lingo, people talk about being born again. That is actually comes directly out of John 3 when Christ is talking to Nicodemus and he tells him, you must be born again. You must be made new. So there is this recreation that we see spoken of in scripture. And in this passage, we see a thorough explanation of what it means to be made new, to be recreated, to be created again, just like, <clears throat> just like that butterfly, or excuse me, just like that caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. So too, we are transformed, made new. First of all, we need to understand who is recreated. Who is that one that the text is speaking of? Well, the answer is right here for us in the text, and you'll see it in verse 17, which we read together. Now, what I'm going to do is verse 17 is at the very heart. And by the way, the reason that verse 17 is so often quoted is because it kind of provides a summary of the rest of this section. So we're going to keep coming back to verse 17, but we're going to look elsewhere in the text for clues, for, for context as to what he is saying in verse 17. Verse 17. Right. So, verse 17, look at it with me again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All right. So, who is the one that is recreated? What is the identity of the new creation? Well, it is those who are in Christ. In Christ. Now, that is a very standard New Testament designation. For someone who is a Christian, a biblical Christian. Now, the world uses the Christian in a very Christian in a very broad sense, right? Everyone who goes to a church and checks the box on the survey, that would be what the world would call a Christian. And I understand what they mean by that, but but by, by New Testament definition, what makes one a Christian is being In Christ, in fact, the most frequent way that that is referred to in the New Testament is to be in Christ. You may hear people call it being born again. That is also a New Testament designation. Being saved, we see that referenced a few times in Scripture. But the most frequent way it is referenced as being in Christ. That is someone who is saved from their sin. So what then does it mean to be saved from sin? Well, look with me at verse 18, to help shed light on that. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself. All right, so, to be in Christ is synonymous with, it is the same as in verse 18, being reconciled, you see that, to God through Jesus Christ. So now, then what does it mean to be reconciled. I mean, that's a big word. That's kind of one of those, you know, theological terms. What do we mean by reconciled? Well, reconciliation is simply a dramatic change in relationship from being at odds, from being enemies, to being brought once again into a loving relationship. That's reconcile. We'll read that definition again. Definition again. It is a dramatic change in relationship from being at odds, from being enemies, to being brought into a loving relationship. Does anybody reconcile their checkbooks anymore? I mean, with software, do you even need to do that? I guess maybe. You remember the old days? Oh, yeah, I guess you're supposed to still reconcile it, aren't you? Yes, our bookkeepers are like, yeah, you're really supposed to do that. Sorry. I, I get months and months behind. It becomes overwhelming. And so what I do is I just kind of take the difference and I add it as a journal entry and then it's, it's all resolved. I don't do that in my business. That's just my personal finances, right? Um, so what does it mean to reconcile your checkbook? When you, when you reconcile your checkbook, you're taking the bank statement and you're putting it side by side with your checkbook you got a calculator out, you got your pen out, and you're finding the discrepancy and you're changing one or the other so that they coincide, right? I mean, that's basically what you do when you reconcile your checkbook. Well, it's really hard to change the bank statement. You're kind of stuck with that. So you now have to bring your checkbook into conformity to the bank statement. Now, there may be rare occasions when the bank got something wrong. And you get on the phone and you talk to the bank and get it figured out, right? What you're doing is you're taking two things that are at odds and you're bringing them in line with each other, okay? Well, we use the term relationally too, don't we, right? Have you ever heard of a divorced couple or a separated couple and we say they have reconciled, right? It's two parties that are at odds have now been brought back into a relationship. Okay, so when we see in verse 18 that God, through Christ, reconciles us, that's what he's talking about. You see, we are at odds with God in our natural state. But through Jesus Christ, we can be brought into right relationship with him. Listen to Romans 5, verse 10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God... Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we are saved by his life. So how does this happen? How does reconciliation take place? You see, we have a sin debt. It's like our checkbook is messed up. Sin is what we do that does not please God or what we fail to do that that we ought to do to please God. Sin is anything that is a violation of God's righteous expectation. And every one of us, you and me included, are guilty of sin. We are born in sin and we continue in our state of rebellion against God. And so because of that, we are now this isn't this isn't what 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 you want to hear, but this is what the Bible teaches. Because of that, you and I are naturally enemies with God. And so verse 19 of our text, look at it please, says not imputing or, or another way of saying that is reckoning, counting against them their trespasses or their sins. You see, God has to judge sin. He would not be just if he failed to do so. He can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't ignore it. But we see in this text that God reconciles the world in Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, God poured out on him the punishment that we deserve. This is the way forgiveness comes. People like the word forgiveness, but they have little understanding of what it means. When when the Bible talks about reconciliation, when the Bible talks about being made right with God, once enemies with God, now right with God, that is forgiveness. But Forgiveness is a term that's little understood in our world. Let me illustrate it. Now, I want to preface this illustration by saying this is not about politics, all right? The, the politics of the situation are completely beside the point of my illustration, okay? So please don't get distracted by the politics, all right? What, no matter what you think should have happened, shouldn't have happened, was right, was wrong, was within the president's authority, whatnot. You all heard about this debt forgiveness that took place with all these student debts, right? You say, well, that shouldn't have... Okay, fine, whatever. That's not my point, all right? But here's the funny thing. You had a lot of Christians saying, well, this is not debt forgiveness. It's debt transfer. Well, make whatever argument you want... As to whether the president should have done that or not. I, I don't care about that. That is a misunderstand that statement is a misunderstanding of the definition of forgiveness. Right? Because when people say that's not forgiveness, that's debt transfer, that means they don't understand the word forgiveness because forgiveness is debt transfer. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, I own a business. Suppose we go and we do work on someone's house and I issue an invoice, okay? Now, I've issued an invoice for $1,000 for the work that we performed on that person's property. And that person calls me in tears. My, my insurance is denied my claim. I don't have any money. My kids are starving. I'm going to, have to take, I'm going to have to take the grocery money and pay this bill. I can't do it. Please, please help me. And I, as a business owner, say, I forgive that debt. What happens to that debt? Well, it doesn't go away. In fact, what, my, what our bookkeepers know is what I don't do is go in and delete the invoice. What do I do? I do a journal entry that now actually makes it a cost of goods sold, right? It is now actually shows up in my cost of business. See the difference? I didn't go delete the invoice. It just poof, disappears in there. Who paid for it? I did. The business owner. The business paid for that debt. So debt forgiveness actually means, in its very essence, debt transfer. That's what people misunderstand about God's forgiveness, right? People think, well, God's a forgiving God, right? And what they mean is he's a super nice guy who's naive enough to just sweep this under the rug. God doesn't do that. He's just. Oh, but he does forgive. He actually pays the debt we owe, You get that? He pays, that's why Jesus Christ had to come and die, to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay. That is far better than a sentimental sweeping it under the rug, because that means God is both just and loving. Christ's forgiveness is only possible because he paid the penalty that we owe and credited His righteousness to our account. In fact, this is exactly the way the text ends. Look at verse 21. He made him, that is Christ. God made Christ to be, who knew no sin, right? Christ was innocent. He did not owe the debt. He made him to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God does not overlook our sin. He doesn't wink at it. He does not dismiss our case. Apart from Christ, we are guilty and we must pay an eternal death sentence. But in Christ, through faith and repentance, we are forgiven. That means the debt has been paid in full. It is paid by another who did not owe the debt. So this morning, if you're a believer in Christ... Rejoice in forgiveness. The pain of the debt we owe. If, my friend, you are not a believer yet, know that in Christ there is forgiveness. True forgiveness. God will not overlook your sin. The debt must be paid. Either you will pay it or He will if you come to Him in faith and repentance. This gift will not be applied through some government intervention. It is appropriated only by faith and repentance. We often sing around here uh, a hymn, His robes for Mine, O oh, Wonderful Exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in His righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place He died. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus, forsaken, God, estranged from God, bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. You see, to be in Christ means that this exchange that is described in verse 21 has taken place. Notice that the last two words of verse 21 that I just read are in Him. The righteousness of God in Him, in Christ if you go back up to verse 14, you'll see we judge thus that if one died, that is, if Christ died for all in the place of all, he offered himself on our behalf. Now, verse 15 kind of ties all of this together, and it tells us that we can, have, we can live a new life because of his death. There is no true change apart from the gospel. And this is why we said at the beginning, you must be changed to change. You see, if this morning you have never been forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God, made right with God through Christ, that is through faith and repentance in Christ, then that is the first order of business. To be changing, you must first change. You see, this is what a lot of people sometimes misunderstand. When they, when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they think, "Ah, oh, I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to make some changes in my life. I need to do some things differently. No, fundamentally you need to be transformed. That is the first order of business. Only through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ being born anew Are you really able to change? Because everything in this passage that talks about changing, that the process of changing or what we might call sanctification, all of that is based on our justification, our being made right with God, being reconciled to God, as the text says. There is no true change apart from the transformation of the gospel. Religion doesn't change us. It doesn't transform you. It merely conforms you. You can go into a religious environment, you can see what other people are doing, you can mimic that, that doesn't transform you, that conforms you. You and I all know people who are good people. They're nice neighbors, they're good friends, they're good employees, they're good employers, they're good fellow PTA members. But don't confuse moral uprightness with the transformation of the gospel. The gospel changes who we are in our standing before God. And so there's a couple applications this morning. The first application would be if there's never been a time when you have turned from your sin, you have repented of your sin and you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sin and eternal life, you must do that. And just as Paul says in the last part of this, he says in verse 20, it's as though God were pleading through us. We beg you, we implore you. On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so that would be what we implore you to do this morning. We beg of you, be reconciled to God through faith and repentance. If you've never done that, anyone who is here who's a member of North Hills Baptist would be happy to sit down with you, take a Bible and show you how you can know that for sure. We even have a little four-week Bible study that we uh, walk through with people. Most all of you in here have gone through that four-week Bible study called The Exchange that teaches in depth what we're talking about this morning. And any of us would be happy to do that. Now, if you are a believer, there's been a time when you have been made new, you've been transformed, understand that all of our growth in Christ is based on the gospel. You heard Jeremy refer to this several times this week. That, that the gospel is the starting point, but it's not the, not the ending point. We come back to the gospel again and again, and so what we see here is a description of this new creation. What does this new creation now look like when we're made new in Christ, when we're born again? Verse 17, go back to that kind of nugget text that, that the other things revolve around. Verse 17, it says what? Old things have passed away. So let's start with the old things that have passed away. What, what is gone? Well, verse 19, we saw that sin is no longer accounted to us. It is no longer imputed to us. It is no longer attributed to us. That is to say, we are no longer guilty before the judge of the universe. So, one of the old things that has passed away is this penalty of sin. We also see in this passage that the old motives are gone, right? This is verse 15. Again, he says... He says something kind of in nugget form in verse 17 that is expanded upon by the surrounding context. So verse 15 says, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the other old thing that is gone is the old motives have passed away. And then it says in verse 17 again, old has passed away, all things new. All things are, are, have become new, or, or the idea we could even say is are becoming new. What's new for the one who is born again? Well, the love of Christ compels us, right? Verse 14, the love of Christ motivates us. We don't do things because we have to do them. We don't do things because they are our duty. We don't do things because that as we do them, we earn God's favor somehow. That's legalism. We know that we could never earn God's favor, but Christ has perfectly earned it on our behalf. And because of that, we love Him because He first loved us. So our motives are completely changed. Love compels us. It it, it positively pressures us to do the right thing. And then in verse 15, but live for Him who died for them. And so the new person lives to please God. We have a new motivation We have a new person that we are striving to please, that is Christ. And then the following statement is is the phrase that we've already looked at about Christ dying for us. Now, when we talk about Christ's love and Christ dying for us, this is not a shallow sentimentality toward Christ. We love Him. This is a profound appreciation for Christ dying in our place. By the way, this is one reason why it is important to not downplay sin and judgment. There is a temptation to do that. If If we try to emphasize God's love by downplaying sin and judgment, we've actually diminished the love of God. God's love shines brightest when we understand the darkness of the backdrop. And so this morning, if you have been forgiven, if you have been made born again, been made new, you've been born again, you have a new motivation you have a new person to please and you have a new ministry and this is what he actually ends with uh, the last part of the, of the passage in verse 18 uh, this is a good place to start all things are of God who has reconciled is reconciled us uh, to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us what the ministry of reconciliation so this this being made right with God that we just talked about, this being justified, having our our sins uh, forgiven, reconciled with God, now we have that same ministry to others, helping others to become right with God. That is to say, verse 19, that God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, and has committed to us this word, of reconciliation. We might say it more colloquially. He has given us the gospel to minister to others, the good news of Jesus' forgiveness. Now we minister to others. And then verse 20 as well, that makes us what? Ambassadors for Christ. It's as if God is using us as a mouthpiece, he says, in verse 20, it's as if God were pleading through us Do you understand that if you've been forgiven, if you've been made right with God, you have the joyous opportunity, you have the joyous ministry of now conveying that, communicating that good news to others. And so my my Christian friend who has been born again, I guess my question for you would be how much of a priority is that for you? Is that something that you are consumed with, that I am now an ambassador of reconciliation? That's a big fancy word, it's a big, fancy phrase, but when you think about it in the context of this passage, "I am one who has the opportunity to work for the king so that others can be made right with the king. Even the king's enemies can be made right with him, because I, too, was once an enemy. That's gospel ministry. That's sharing the gospel with others. And this is the ministry that we have. Because we've been changed, we must be changing and we must be helping others change. So, who is that person that you are thinking about and praying for and seeking opportunities for relationship with so that you can convey the gospel to them? Imagine a rough beggar who is on the streets in medieval times barely able to survive on the scraps of food that he finds laying in the gutter. Imagine a man so poor that he has no means to buy anything. Occasionally, people will take pity upon him and throw a coin to him, and that is a great treasure because he is destitute. And imagine the king's chariot one day comes down the road where he lies in the gutter, and he, the king looks out and he takes pity on that young man suppose that he he took him back to the palace and he cleaned him up and he and he gave him he gave him clean robes and he he gave him an opportunity to even sit at the table of the king he adopted him as his own son and then a few weeks later the king begins to ask his servants where where's he gone only to find that he's gone back out to the gutter he's once again digging through trash to find some scraps that he can eat. Of course, we would look at that and we would say, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that, doesn't, that doesn't add up. Why? Because he's acting inconsistent with his new position, his new relationship with the king. And so likewise, you and I are to be different because Christ has made us different if you're a believer this morning. If you are in Christ, you should be changing because you have been changed. What areas of your life are changing this morning? Everything should be changing. Your relationships, your habits, your attitudes, the way you treat your family, your thought life, the list could go on and on of ways that we should be changing. We should not be the same person that we were yesterday and a week ago and a year ago through Christ's strength. Maybe you're a newer believer and you feel like everything's changing. Everything's different. You're maybe even a little unsettled about that. Take heart. You're a new person. You're, you're no longer that caterpillar. You're now a butterfly. And if it seems like everything is changing in your life, that's probably a good thing. Things should be changing. And then my friend this morning who's watching by video or who's here in the auditorium this morning, who's never come to faith and repentance, there's never been a time when you've been born again, you've been made new in Christ, I would just implore you, As Paul said, be reconciled to God. Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture that reminds us of the fundamental work that you do through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would take these words and apply them now to our hearts in the quietness of this moment.